0: I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me, books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at or you can leave a voice message at the podcast homepage on anchor.fm. In this episode, I share a few observations. I talk about a wonderful and brilliant book I read recently, and I share some thoughts that follow on from last week's episode that provide a wider biblical context for why I think it's crucial for Christians to learn from cultural critics who analyze the way that social power dynamics work to foster systems of oppression. So I wanted to start this episode by just uh, making a couple of random observations. These are just things that I've been thinking about, some of the stuff that fills my time. And uh, you know, takes up space in my brain. First of all, it has been so good to have baseball back. Um, the season started a month or two ago, and it's been a blast. I was so looking forward to this season. Um, the last couple of years, the Cubs have sort of struggled um, with you know starting out strong um, each season and uh, building big leads and just pl- having stretches where they're playing great. Um, But they've just collapsed down the stretch, which has been tremendously frustrating. And they have fallen into familiar habits of having just a complete inability to score runs, which is so frustrating to watch. And um, because that's happened over the last uh, three seasons, the Cubs decided to part ways with um, their manager, Joe Madden, the only manager who has brought them a World Series championship in the last 108 years before 2016. Um, and they hired uh, David Ross, who um, played on that championship team and um, was a broadcaster for a while. And he was a leader when he was with the Cubs and uh, all the players respect him. And he was apparently going to bring like, a new spirit to the team and um, solve some of the problems. Well, a couple of the problems he's actually solved uh, with, you know, discipline on the base paths, uh, defense, which has been great. But over the last couple of weeks, I mean, we are in falling into the same habit where the Cubs just cannot score. They've got these this incredible lineup, great hitters, um, but they're doing the same thing that they did at the ends of the last couple of seasons, you know, trying to win games on one swing. You know, there's no small ball, no sort of base hits, move runners along, uh, score runs in bunches, get a rally going. It is really frustrating to watch. I watched uh, last night's game and um, they got shut out. Um, they were shut out just before that. They won the previous game, one nothing. I mean, come on, scoring one run in three games with that muscular, beefy lineup is is really frustrating. I was so excited for this year. I got, um, in March, I was out in Phoenix, uh, teaching at, uh, a missional training center, which was a total blast and got to spend about four or five days in Phoenix and take in a couple of stream, uh, spring training games. There seemed to be a lot of energy. Uh, this was going to be a new start with a new manager. And, um, I was very excited, but, um, I gotta be honest. I am nervous about the playoffs. Uh, even still, it's been fun to have baseball back. It's bringing you know a little bit of normalcy to life. It is a bit odd to be watching games with no fans in the stands and um, you know, fan noise sort of piped in uh, when something happens. it's It feels a bit inauthentic, but um, baseball's back, and you know culture's falling apart. Countries, who knows what's going to happen, but at least we have baseball. It's been fun also to have golf back. Um, I you know, since I was in high school, I just I fell in love with the game of golf. Um, I sort of despise the rich culture around it, but I, I just love the actual game itself. And um, have you know since the late '80s, my my emotional year kind of revolves around the golf majors. Um, you know the big events but then uh, the major championships in April, June, July, and August. And, um, you know, all winter long, just looking forward to the Masters in April. Um, And this year, when it got canceled, I was just, I was sort of taken aback by how, you know, bummed I was. I mean, obviously, there are so many very, very serious things happening. This is a relatively small thing. Um, But with all of that going on, having lost that, um, that sort of, Emotional start to the spring and summer. It just was. It was so disappointing. Um, but golf is back. Over the last couple of months, they've moved the Masters to November. Uh, the PGA Championship was played in May, and the U.S. Open ended yesterday. Uh, it was played at Wingfoot, Foot, uh, a historic course, one of the toughest courses in the country. And every time it's played, uh, every time the U.S. Open is played at Wingfoot. Foot um scores just skyrocket because it's it's such a tough course and the USGA knows how to you know make the course even tougher. Um three of the six previous championships that were held there uh the scores were the winning scores were, were all over par, which is really amazing. I mean these guys play golf for a living, they get their bodies conditioned uh to play tough courses and um to see the best players in the world just really struggle uh you know, in a sinister and kind of fun way was sort of nice. You know, it's kind of how I look on a golf course every once in a while. Um, but it, uh, Bryson DeChambeau won yesterday and um, the U.S. Open was pretty much, well, a typical open, really tough, players struggling. And uh, it just so happened that uh, Bryson DeChambeau, you know, caught fire and uh, won by six shots, um, you know, Sometimes the U.S. Open is kind of a grind, and it was uh, over this weekend. But uh, again, just a bit of normalcy in a time um, that feels anything but normal. I also want to talk about something that I saw last week, and ever since I saw it, I've been sort of chewing on it and turning it over and over in my mind, and uh, trying to unpack some of the dynamics that are that are beneath it, and you know, to sort of discern what it reflects. I pulled up behind a truck uh, last week, and the truck had a campaign bumper sticker on it that said, Trump, make liberals crazy again. And I just wondered about that. And it made me think of uh, the 1992 election when uh, George H.W. Bush was up against uh, Bill Clinton. And there was also a third party candidate in that race, Ross Perot. And um, it appeared that Ross Perot probably siphoned off a bunch of votes from. From Bush and gave the election to Clinton. Um, and I remember in the spring and on into the summer of 1992, it doesn't feel like I'm that old, but I'm that old. Um, I remember that um, Bush's campaign was sort of faltering, his his lead um, was shrinking, and it appeared like he was just going to be in real trouble. And then on into the fall, it became pretty clear he was not going to win the election. and. What was fascinating to me, and caught my attention, um, was Bush's sort of desperation at the end. You know, the campaign was just desperate, and um, Bush was is a very um, sort of cultured and cultivated person, um, a lot of class and dignity. Um, but near the end of his campaign, he started just repeating, uh, "Annoy the media, vote for Bush." And I remember thinking, that makes no sense at all. Like that is no reason to vote for somebody, just to annoy somebody else. And I think that that same sentiment is what lies beneath that bumper sticker, make liberals crazy again. And it seems to me that what lies uh, beneath that and what is tragic, uh, and we see it so much in our in our culture today, especially around uh, presidential party politics. Uh, is that the spirit of spite? Um, I mean, I hear it in my own culture, um, among the people whom I typically dwell, which is you know white conservative Christians. Um, I hear it all the time. It's, it's sort of a spirit of resentment uh, or a spirit of spite, uh, the desire to say things, just to provoke a reaction in somebody else, or a desire that something would happen just to uh, you know drive somebody else crazy, just to annoy them. Uh, whether it's liberals or media or, you know, whoever, um, this resentment on the part of certain factions within our culture toward other factions, and that is so tragic. I think it's taken uh, quite a strong foothold um, in evangelical culture, and I I hear that um, certainly among a lot of conservative people, and I'm sure that someone will respond to what I'm saying by pointing out that the other side is like that too. Which may be the case. I have no idea. I'm sure that spite and resentment exist across the political spectrum or across uh, various uh, cultural factions that look to different political parties uh, with some sense of loyalty. But just even that response, the other side is like that too. It seems to me that that reveals that someone saying this sees themselves on being on a side, which is not a Christian way of being. And pointing this out may give a person the feeling that because others are sp- are filled with spite and resentment, then it's permissible for us to be filled with spite and resentment as well. But that's simply a profound misunderstanding of what it means to be Christian. And sadly, I find uh, this spirit among a number of Christian people that I talk to when it comes to talking about larger uh, political and cultural dynamics. This just makes me, I have to say, just tremendously sad. Um, this is no reason to, to do anything to spite somebody else or uh, to support a political candidate just to drive somebody else crazy. Uh, that to me is, um, is very tragic. It's not a way of regarding um, ourselves as being good neighbors. It's not a way simply to be happy. I mean, I don't want to do anything to make anybody else angry at me or I don't want you know to drive them crazy or trigger them or however we talk about this. Um, it seems to me that you know, when everybody calm down, think about the larger uh, dynamics and culture and who's fit and unfit for certain positions, do your research, do your homework, um, and think about casting a vote uh, from that approach and maybe not talking about it afterwards. Um, but wanting to drive uh, Democrats crazy or wanting to drive Republicans crazy is simply no way to be a human and to be filled with that kind of spite um, is really, really tragic. So anyway, I'm going to be talking uh, throughout this podcast about um, these larger cultural dynamics. And um, it seems to me that noticing uh, those kind of dynamics is, is really, really crucial um those things have to be rooted out simply for the purposes of being happy in this life and being happy in this world and being someone that uh, another person would be happy to bump into. Um, I have uh, grave uh, objections, and um, I, uh, against the current president and about his fitness for this job. I have every uh, conviction that he is uh, one of the one of the worst humans in public life, and should in no way be in any uh, position of, of trust or authority. Um, but I, it makes me very unsettled um, when when people say nasty things about, you know, quote-unquote Trump supporters um, or Trump voters. Uh, I, I feel like there are people who will be supportive of this or that candidate for a variety of reasons. And while I have profound disagreements um, I don't wish ill on anybody, and I don't want um, anybody to be feeling badly about anything. I really wish people would consider um, you know, the larger dynamics of what, um, what the office of president entails and the kind of qualifications we should be considering for people. Um, but I do realize that people cast a vote for a variety of reasons. Um, and I want to be always looking at other people who don't think the way that I do, um, in a way that I'm taking them seriously as people, uh, and not downgrading them. So I think that it is really worth um, everybody considering um, whether there are sort of spiteful or resentful um, impulses in how we think about other people, and how we think about how they think about politics. Um, you know, there's a there's a considered way of regarding these matters. And there's also an appropriate way for thinking about and treating other people. Um, But to take a position so that somebody else will be upset or will be driven crazy uh, seems to me to indicate that, um, I don't know, you're not a serious person. And, you know, I I strive to be a serious person and think well about things that are actually serious, uh, but being consumed with spite and resentment is, is... simply no way to do that. I want to tell you about a book. This is a little bit of a departure from other books that I've talked about, but it is one of the most wonderful and deeply moving books I've ever read. It's a novel by Richard Powers called The Overstory. Now, for those of you who have no knowledge of forestry like myself, an overstory is the topmost layer of a forest, the foliage at the tops of the trees, and an understory is the forest floor and all the vegetation that lives there, and yes, I had to look those up. I don't read a lot of fiction, certainly not as much as I would like to, maybe a novel a year or something like that, some short stories here and there, but I picked this one up on the recommendation of some friends that I really trust. And since it won the Pulitzer in 2019, along with loads of other major literary awards, I figured it would be good. And it was. Powers weaves together a handful of stories of the lives of various characters together with a larger vision of the vast and vibrant life of trees and forests all around us. I had known that this is basically what the novel was about, And I have to say that I wondered how on earth he was going to pull it off. But all I can say is that it is simply masterful, breathtaking, and profoundly beautiful. Nothing moves me like beautiful writing. And on page after page, I just gasped at his prose. I just flopped the book down in my lap and just filled with wonder. It was overwhelming. I read countless paragraphs multiple times just to savor his gorgeous writing. The novel portrays the reality that we're part of something far greater, a reality so alive that we simply never give any attention to with our busy lives of flitting about. The overstory reveals how trees communicate with one another, how they care for their offspring, and how forests travel over time. And he reveals the threats to trees and forests, these creatures that actually care for human life too, providing us with medicines. And that threat is us, humans. Because of our ignorance of our fellow creatures and our lack of care for them and our endless pursuit of clearing land for further development, our greed, our ignorance, we're destroying our fellow creatures and we're hastening our own demise. It's fascinating to witness the development of certain characters that Power, Powers narrates as some become aware of this unfolding catastrophe and take action in various ways. For me, this novel was just a a wonderful respite from the awful realities of the pandemic over the past summer, and I read much of it under the glorious shade of our backyard maple. If you read it, and I highly recommend it, you will never look at trees as you have in the past. You will certainly appreciate the beauty and wonder of forests and woods and have eyes to see the wondrous and spectacular diversity of life within them. The novel is The Overstory by Richard Powers. Read it. And be transformed, and get it from an independent bookstore. Well, over the last week, I received a few emails about the powers and authorities. I believe I mentioned them in the previous episode, in connection with um, you know doing the really hard work of of critical cultural analysis, and. Um, along with another email that um, got at the sort of postures that I was talking about and the ways of engaging in conversation with others in order to learn. And a lot of that is based on how um, Paul uh, talks about Christian identity in relation to the larger problem that he sees in the world and that he sees that the gospel addressed. So I wanted to talk about uh, the larger framework that shapes my thought. And this touches on themes that I've hit before, like individualism, um, but it also reveals how and why I think that uh, analytical approaches like critical race theory, feminism, along with other aspects of cultural criticism, are so helpful uh, to Christian people and you know run directly along the lines of how Scripture portrays Christian identity and how we're called to embody that identity uh, in the world. So I want to talk about the powers and authorities and what they do in Paul and how they shape his thought and all that kind of stuff, and uh, just to talk a little bit about how I came to, um, you know, this discovery and this awareness. Um, I was raised in an evangelical environment, a wonderful one. Uh, went to um, an evangelical seminary and uh, was trained uh, to think theologically, you know, sort of according to evangelical lines, which. Um, imagines that uh, the problem, when it comes to salvation, the problem that salvation solves, is that individuals are sinners and they each stand in need of having their sins forgiven. And pretty much all theological reflection at the event, you know, among evangelicals, uh, begins there, and you know, is consumed with that question. You know, how what, what are the what are the mechanics? of how salvation works out, and how is forgiveness attained, Um, you know, what's the order of how it all sort of works out in an individual's life. And so much of thinking about salvation and of thinking about the whole of the gospel is from the perspective of how things work out in a person's life. Um, what, What are the benefits received at salvation, you know, coming to us from God? And uh, I began my doctoral studies. Um, my goodness, twenty years ago, uh, in Ephesians, and I I set out to just work through the structure of the letter and the argument, and um, how you know a painstakingly slow analysis over weeks of working through the Greek grammar and how that you know how the whole argument and the rhetoric works in that letter. And I noticed that um, these figures these powers and authorities showed up at critical points in the letter um, you know the i think i think that paul argues or i should say i think that paul's argument begins paul's argument begins um, in uh, at the end of uh, chapter 1 in verses 20 to 23 that's sort of a thesis statement for the letter that's what i argued in my dissertation and um, Paul mentions that Christ has been exalted over these figures. And I just kind of puzzled, like, well you know why is that sort of um, critical for Paul to lay out? and how does that how does that shape the rest of his argument? I noticed also that Paul closes the letter with these figures, talking about the church's warfare or the church's battle. Um, a battle of resistance against these powers in chapter six, verses ten to eighteen, a very famous passage about you know the armor of God. So um, anybody studying the New Testament knows if somebody opens and closes uh, a passage with a certain um, you know topic, that means that that's the that is critical for understanding the whole. So I was thinking, man, you know, goodness, this is this is serious for Paul. I mean, he really means to kind of foreground these figures and what God has done in relation to them. Furthermore, they appear right in the middle of the letter in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, where uh, Paul talks about how God is um, sort of doing all that he does in order to demonstrate his wisdom to these entities. Um, So I began to inquire, like, who are these figures and what do they do? like? What's their background? What does Paul think that they are? and uh, why does he think it's a big deal to talk about them? And in that process uh, of discovery, I came to see uh, that Paul's vision of God's work in the world is cosmic. It embraces the whole of creation, heaven and earth, including these heavenly figures, um, you know, including what happened to it, how God has acted to set it right. And that vision shapes Paul's Christian identity, including the forms of community life uh, that we participate in and the postures that we take toward one another and the postures that the church adopts toward the world. So I want to take a little bit of time and lay this out and talk about um, how Scripture portrays the larger cosmic wide picture. Um, And this is the scenario that shapes Paul's thought. Uh, According to Jewish tradition, and according to the Old Testament, uh, you know, when God created the world, he created humanity to image God by ruling creation on his behalf, spreading God's order of flourishing worldwide, um, overseeing the spread of shalom. And God's rule was manifested through in creation through humanity. And what's interesting is that God had other divine agents of rule at the cosmic level. The Old Testament uh, shares a worldview with the rest of the cultures that surrounded it, that surrounded ancient Israel, where it saw the heavens populated with divine beings. And on many ancient or Eastern conceptions of things, there was sort of one main God that um, had gained ascendancy over all the other gods and had defeated them and sort of you know ruled over them and used them as servants of various kinds. I and mean, there's a sort of divine pecking order In a variety of ancient Near Eastern worldviews. Israel's scriptures share that view of the world. Uh, One of the distinctions is is that God um, has a a bunch of other gods along with him. They're called gods at various points in the Old Testament. They're called um, sons of God, um, a a number of terms. Uh, the, The one distinction between Israel's scriptures and other ancient Near Eastern cultures, however, is that these are not beings that god sort of defeated and you know he won ascendancy over them Um, he created them god is the only true creator god and these other divine agents of rule at the cosmic level are his creations and um we see this in a variety of places we see this uh, in the very beginning of job when god calls all the sons of god to him i mean we have a number of passages in the old testament that refer to the divine council where God sort of enters His council, and He kind of shares His thoughts about a you know a variety of things. This is one of the ways that um, Scripture sort of uh, lets us in on God's thinking. Um, this is what He's kind of planning in the world, and um, He speaks out loud to the divine council as sort of a way of kind of talking out, you know, thinking out loud. Uh, like I said, the beginning of Job is one of these scenes, and. Um, we see this at the actually at the very beginning of creation when God said, "Let us make man in our image," and that's a reference to the divine council. That's not a reference to the Trinity. Um, that's God speaking out loud to these other divine beings, talking about creating um, a human creature who rules just like God rules, and just like these other divine uh, entities, um, God has appointed to also rule. Um, they're going to create. You know, God is going to create humans in that image, in his image, um, as a ruler. Uh, You can see this in a couple other places. Um, In Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, it says this, uh, When the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. The Lord's own portion was his people, Jacob his allotted share. So there we see that God um, has a unique relationship with Israel, um, an immediate relationship with Israel. That is to say, it's unmediated. Um, he, he knows God. I mean, God knows Israel himself, and he is present to Israel. He is the God of Israel, but he chooses in some way to rule over the lives of all the other nations through these other gods, through these um, creations of his that he has appointed um, to rule. And uh, a couple of interesting things that we see here, whenever these other gods show up in Old Testament texts, the one true God is given a unique title, the most high God, in order to sort of set him apart from, it's not like these are all the same and the God of Israel happened to kind of win in some sort of battle. The Old Testament is uh, portraying the reality that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God, the creator, and alone the creator, um, is highly exalted above these other gods that are his creation. Um, it's just that uh, these other gods have been given some kind of um, you know deputized role in order to rule the lives of the nations that are not Israel. Um, you see this also in uh, Daniel chapter ten. In in Daniel nine, Daniel prays this prayer of confession uh, on behalf of. Of Israel to God, and um, three weeks later, he's walking alongside the river, and uh, in in, uh, in while they're in exile, and um, Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel, shows up, and he gives this message to Daniel, and he says, "Daniel, I, you know, when when your prayer was heard, um, I was dispatched to come to you and deliver you, to you this message. It's just that it took me three weeks to get here." because I was doing battle with the prince of persia that's one of these figures this this um this god figure this archangelic probably ruler figure of of cosmic you know status who rules over the national life of persia and then um gabriel delivers uh, to daniel his message and he says i'm going to go now and i know that i'm going to be You know, dealing again with the prince of Persia and also with the prince of Greece, Uh, but Michael is going to come to my aid. So, I mean, just some kind of window into the cosmic um, drama unfolding, and that's um, not—I don't know—it is what it is. But but that is a note of how there are um, there's a god that sort of rules the national life of Persia, and there's there's one of these godlike figures that rules the national life of Greece um, on behalf of the one true God. And Gabriel and Michael are uh, special agents to assist in God's oversight of Israel. Um, One further window into this uh, Old Testament picture is Psalm 82, where God again enters the divine council. He summons the gods to himself, which a number of Psalms kind of portray this. And psalmists typically call upon uh, the gods or the sons of God uh, to give praise to the one true God, the only God that's worthy of glory and honor and worship. And in Psalm eighty-two, God says that um, these gods, He commissioned them to rule their to rule over their nations and to orient their cultures according to God's justice. Um, you know, they were supposed to to see that culture was oriented so that the poor and the orphan and the widow were looked after, but they failed, and they have spread injustice rather than God's justice. So that's kind of a post-fall view of God um, speaking to these figures in the Divine Council. But that's just to say that even um, even before any kind of rebellion and introduction of sin into the world, according to the scriptural narrative, According to God's original design, there were these these figures that God had appointed to assist him in his rule, um, into his oversight, to assist him in his oversight of the whole of creation, making sure that all of the nations uh, that were to develop as time went on uh, worshiped the one true God in a variety of ways, and that worship would have been lived out in a culture-wide way of being that um, honored God. In their social practices. So um, yeah, international diversity was in view from the beginning, so that um, you know nations would have developed very differently. They would have developed different festivals and um, holidays and cultural practices and different pers- you know national personalities and um, things to celebrate about their own culture. and in and in this way, there would have been sort of this symphony um, or great diversity of God's glory seen internationally, and God had commissioned these gods to assist him um, in helping that uh, come about. It's interesting that God, the God of Israel, um, the one true creator God, always, from the beginning, um, chooses to rule through agents. I mean, he manifests his rule over creation, um, over the earth, through humans, through Adam and Eve, and you know the first humans were to spread God's order of flourishing worldwide. And it so happens that He also wants the cosmos, the in the cosmic realm, the heavens. He wants uh, to rule that aspect of creation through agents. Why does God do things this way? I don't have reason. This is just how God chooses to order His creation. But from the beginning, that was supposed to be how it went. Well, uh, things do not continue that way, uh, as we know. So not only does Scripture narrate a, um, a fall in the human realm, but Scripture narrates a fall in the cosmic realm. We see that in uh, Genesis 6, 1 to 4. And uh, well, I'll just read this text. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that they were fair and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God went in to the daughters of humans and bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. So this text is the beginning... Of a tradition that runs throughout the Old Testament and on into the Jewish literature that shaped the New Testament writers' uh, worldview, including Paul's, um, that is, these sons of God, these appointed ruler figures. Um, this is the way that they rebelled against God's commission of them to oversee uh, the flourishing of creation. They somehow, you know, looked on human women with lust and sexual desire and. They incarnated themselves as bodies and had sexual relations with women and um, produced a race of giants. This is sort of the epic history um, of Genesis uh, 1 through 11. So in some mysterious way, they broke the barrier between the realm of the gods and the human realm and sort of ruptured the cosmic order of God's good world. Just to say um, there was a human rebellion, and also a rebellion at the cosmic level, and it seems to me that this is the Bible's way of saying that you know the problem is far greater than simply you know humans not um, you know humans not being obedient to God or doing what God wanted. The problem just extends to the very fabric of of creation itself. At the cosmic level, things have, are just radically messed up. So uh, one of the important points uh, to make here is that these divine figures these creations of God are now uh, no longer ordering their appointed realms with God's justice they're not ensuring that um cultures develop and nations develop practices and rituals and festivals and develop their own national personality as an expression of the worship of the one true God these rebellious figures are now sort of fostering the formation of human cultures according to their own corrupt character according to you know the god's corrupt character and this is who they've become um and this is who they are they're they're filled with selfish grasping i mean this is the form of their rebellion against god they want what they want i mean they look on they objectify women and they look on them with desire and um they exploit others for their own pleasure, for their own selfish gain. Um, you know, their character has become filled with discontentment for ambition, for something that, something more than what they're given. And, uh, you could see all of these dynamics, uh, throughout the history of human cultures. So rather than orienting, uh, the cultures that they oversaw, according to Shalom and according to God's justice. They now orient their cultures toward injustice, toward violence, um, toward animosity toward others, animosity um, toward other groups within their nations, and as nations, uh, they're filled with animosity toward other nations, animosity and fear and um, desires for domination. Um, These are cultures now filled with oppression, exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable and all of that is sort of the work of these um cosmic ruler figures so yes um humans are rebellious humans are responsible for their own disobedience but the forms that our rebellion against god take are oriented by the sinful patterns of life that these rebellious cosmic powers make available in our human our in our experience of being human so we no longer experience Uh, God Shalom, his order of flourishing, but now we are driven by ambition, by selfish grasping, um, by exploiting others, and by seeking power over others. Well, uh, these figures, these gods uh, of the nations, play a major role in the apocalyptic Jewish literature that shaped the Jewish vision of the cosmic realm in Paul's day, and his worldview was affected by that. Uh, one example of this, just from the second century BC, is a um, a Jewish text called the Book of Jubilees. It um, it affirms this this uh, uh, Jewish conviction that while Israel was the special preserve of the one true God, um, cosmic figures of authority were appointed to oversee the nations, which led them astray into idolatry. Uh, this is what Jubilees says in in chapter fifteen, and God sanctified them; that is, Israel. And gathered them from all the sons of man, because there are many nations and many people, and they all belong to him. But over all of them, he caused spirits to rule, so that they might lead them astray from following him. But over Israel, he did not cause any angel or spirit to rule, because he alone is their ruler, and he will protect them, and he will seek for them at the hand of his angels, and at the hand of his spirits, and at the hand of all his authorities, so that he might guard them and bless them, and they might be his and he might be theirs henceforth and forever. Uh, so there you can see that um, these cosmic ruler figures were appointed over the lives of nations. And um, you know, Jubilees is a heavily, uh, a heavily deterministic text. Like God did this so that they would lead them astray into idolatry. Um, that goes a lot further than the Old Testament does. Um, but you know, Paul's theology reflects some of what Jubilees has here. The reality. That lying behind systems of idolatry that we find in the world are these cosmic ruler figures that lure and tempt humanity to engage in them, which is very interesting. And so um, at a cosmic level, um, a biblical analysis of why Israel was tempted to uh, to serve other gods apart from the God of Israel uh, would be that... Um, you know, these gods that were appointed by god to rule over the lives of their nations kind of got their hooks into israel and drew israel away from loyalty to god so that they would become idolatrous uh first enoch is also a text from uh, from this era and it elaborates at great length about you know all of the things that these figures introduce into human experience especially idolatrous systems and unjust practices um and these jewish texts along with a number of others portray these these cosmic ruler figures as kind of being led as sort of one group um by satan satan sort of stands at the head of these rebellious uh cosmic ruler figures um i don't know you know i'm not sure i want to make a detailed org chart of how they all work, or if there's a reporting structure, or who knows. Um, but this is sort of the worldview of Judaism that uh the New Testament reflects. There's Satan, God's cosmic archenemy, and all of these other cosmic figures, um, that do uh that work along with him to ensure that humanity's experience in this world is not what God intended, but is rather an enslaving, oppressive, um, discouraging uh depressing kind of an experience Uh, they sort of ensure that this is our experience of this world is is um a godless experience um god was supposed to be our very life and um to animate us and we were supposed to enjoy his presence but that is that's not the case because of humanity's rebellion but also because of the rebellion of these figures um And just to say, I think I'll make this point in a little bit, but just to say, these figures work at uh, a macro level. They don't, these are not figures that inhabit a person or they don't work on your brain. Um, They're not, uh, according to all these texts, they're not at work to make sure your car doesn't start uh, or to cause problems in your relationships. Um, They orient. Cultural patterns and ideologies and mindsets, um, so that people end up being turned against each other, and um, human, you know, individual human sinfulness is exacerbated. They basically make available a variety of practices within the world that are oppressive and uh, exploitative, and they make them available for humans to choose them. Um, interestingly, in Jubilees 10, uh, God consigns all of these rebellious figures to some kind of like um, temporary prison uh, so that they will await the day of judgment when God will destroy them. And um, it's a fascinating conversation that Satan has with God because Satan says to God, Look, my job is to lead humanity astray into idolatry. And how am I going to do that if I don't have any help? So God allows a tenth of these uh, rebellious figures to. Um, to not be consigned in any kind of prison and um, so that Satan can use them to lead the nations astray, which is a really fascinating way of putting things. Um, this tradition shows up in the New Testament in uh, Jude and Second Peter. And I think First Peter also reflects this a bit as well. These uh, rulers, these, um, these divine rulers that did not keep their own domain um, but broke through and therefore rebelled against God and are awaiting their day of judgment. So just to say, coming out of the Old Testament, you've got this picture of the one true God and his divine counsel that is his creation, and they are accountable to him. And uh, he has called them to help him oversee the lives of the nations so that creation uh, would experience flourishing and that God would be glorified. But these figures have rebelled And are now orienting cultures so that cultures do not experience shalom, but experience oppression, exploitation, human degradation, and uh, self destruction. So that's a bit of a sketch of uh, the Jewish worldview that provided the conceptual framework for the New Testament writers, especially for Paul when he talks so much about the powers and authorities. The various episodes throughout Israel's scriptures about the cosmic rulers provided a vocabulary uh, for accounting for how the entire cosmos has been corrupted by sin and why there's so much injustice in the world, why there's warfare, why there's violence. Humanity has indeed been corrupted, but according to Paul's inherited Jewish worldview, something far more profound has happened to creation than simply that humans are rebellious. The notion that the cosmic rulers hold creation in their oppressive grip provided a way for Jews to conceptualize this. It was a vocabulary and a framework, and it certainly operated that way for Paul. So when Jews of Paul's day looked out at the lives of the nations and wondered why they were all idolatrous or why and how large-scale systems of injustice had developed, um, these kind of dynamics that are larger than the sum of individual actions... They looked to these rebellious God figures, these cosmic rulers, these gods of the nations as perverting God's world. And um, that accounts for sort of structural and systemic evil and injustice. Basically, Jews had language for structural and systemic injustice, for systems of oppression and exploitation uh, that showed up in social practices and between social groups and social ordering. Um, it was not an individualistic culture, and Paul does not think uh, individualistically, but this this cosmic vision is what uh, shapes Paul's thought. Just a couple of examples of this. Um, he calls these ruler figures by various names, um, mostly the powers and authorities. Sometimes he just uh, refers to them in sort of abstract terms, you know, uh, all rule and authority and power and dominion, something like that. Um, Sometimes he calls them rulers of this present darkness, as in uh, Colossians and Galatians. Oh, sorry. In in Colossians and Galatians, he calls them the elemental spirits of the world. In Ephesians, he calls them the rulers of this present darkness. And in 1 Corinthians, he calls them the rulers of this age. Um, This shows up in 1 Corinthians 2, when Paul confronts the Corinthians for having a social life that is ordered according to the corrupt patterns in the surrounding culture of Corinth, rather than the social form of life that the cross creates, Paul talks about these figures because that's what lies behind uh, corrupt social practices. So this is from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. Paul says that we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So a fascinating passage that kind of gets at uh, several of the dynamics of Paul's thought. Uh, first of all, what we see here is that... Um, This age, the current age, this present evil age, is dominated by these cosmic ruler figures that are in rebellion against God and in His against His purposes for creation. Um, That is a huge thing to look out for in Paul's letters. References to this age, sometimes translations give to us something like this world, like in Romans twelve two, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. It's slightly unfortunate because you know. Behind that is for Paul, is this age, which he sees as an era that is corrupted by these um, rebellious cosmic ruler figures with perverted mindsets and ideologies and social practices of oppression. Anyway, just to say, Paul recognizes that lying behind all of that are these rulers, the rulers of this age, these cosmic figures. He's not talking about um, earthly rulers there. Uh, secondly, Paul notes that they, these figures sort of like sow within creation, they insert within creation a wisdom. He talks about the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of the rulers of this age. There's a kind of logic or a way of reasoning or a way of thinking that runs contrary to God's wisdom or God's logic or God's way of thinking or God's way of doing things. There's a way of doing things in this world that is oriented by the rulers of this age. So, you know, common sense ways of getting things done or or how we should do things isn't neutral. These are not, new. culture is not neutral. Lying behind cultural patterns and typical commonsensical ways of thinking are these ruler figures. And here Paul also notes that these figures are responsible for the death of Christ. It's not that they, you know, put him to death themselves, um, this is a little bit speculative, um, but it appears that in some way these figures had an awareness that uh, the arrival of Christ into the world was God's crucial move uh, to take His world back, and you know the corrupt ways of thinking that they had inserted within creation uh, you know, fostered mindsets of power questing and domination. And those mindsets affected earthly rulers who were threatened by Jesus and so put him to death because um, they wanted to hold on to their power and did not like this prophetic voice speaking on behalf of God, calling, the, calling them out for their injustice. So ultimately, behind all of that, Paul sees God's cosmic enemies. Um, and fourth, because because these Uh, rulers of this age did not understand God's wisdom. They don't understand God's way of working um, because God's way of working and God's way of thinking and God's logic makes no sense to these cosmic ruler figures, and therefore it makes no sense to earthly rulers. And that wisdom or that logic is that God wins by losing. He creates resurrection life out of death. I mean, the way up is down. The way to be exalted is to be a servant. And these cosmic ruler figures have their character or, uh, shaped by what they did, by selfish grasping, by, by power accumulation, um, you know, by extreme selfishness and self-conceit. Um, and so God's way of working and God's wisdom, God's logic, the logic of the cross, is utterly foreign. And what's interesting here is that Paul says because they didn't understand God's wisdom, they didn't realize that their triumph over Jesus in his death was their defeat. And so, in Paul's theology, and in, in, in New Testament theology, this is in the Gospels as well. Um, the cross is the it, it is the judgment and the destruction of the present evil age, and that of course is symbolized by. Uh, the temple veil being torn when the temple veil is, is torn in the, in the, in the gospels, I think that's only in Matthew and Mark, that's not, uh, an image that, you know, the way to God is now open because Christ died. Um, that's sort of a way of thinking based on a certain kind of atonement theology that's read into the text, uh, on the curtain in the temple was portrayed, uh, the constellation, basically the universe, the, um, the temple, was a microcosm of the universe and when the temple veil is just ripped that is the sign of god's judgment on this present evil age so the death of christ is the defeat of the rulers of this age and the death of christ is the creation of the new creation um, the inauguration of the new creation in Jesus' death and resurrection uh, furthermore, when Paul says uh, that they are coming to nothing, um, these the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, that's not a great uh, translation of that expression. Um, he's making the point there that they are doomed to perish. They are, they are going to be destroyed at the day of Christ, and that will be the day of their ultimate judgment. So, the present evil age is judged at the cross, um, but the present evil age is not completely over. It's not completely done. And the powers and authorities are sort of still doing their work of the perversion of culture. And that's going to continue to happen until uh, the day of Christ, until the day of of, uh, Christ's final victory. And this is what Paul looks forward to in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, when he says that Christ has been exalted, he's been raised from the dead, he's been installed as cosmic Lord, and he has begun this task of subduing his enemies. And he's not done yet. It's still in process. Um, And he says, then the end will come, in verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That's a reference to those figures. For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's a reference to final victory, final subjugation of enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the present age is character is going to be characterized by ongoing destruction and um, oppression and um, a lack of the experience of God's flourishing in this world. And that's simply a sign that Christ has not yet fully subdued all his enemies. And these figures are still doing a work of deception and of sowing within creation all kinds of confusion. Um ideologies that enslave and that divide and that um, uh, foster human degradation, etc. Uh, in Colossians 2.15, um, Paul makes another reference to Christ's defeat of, of these figures in his death, when Paul says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, that is to say, he led them in, tr- in a triumph at his exaltation. Um, that's what I think that that's making reference to. Um, Just like a Roman, a conquering uh, Roman general or emperor uh, would lead all of his enemies in a big long train or a big parade for several days uh, re-entering Rome, Uh, Christ on his way to his cosmic throne after his resurrection um, led all of these defeated figures behind him as his defeated enemies. So, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public example of them, uh, triumphing over them in his cross. Uh, We can also see, so that's just to make the point that um, this Old Testament conception of things, and there's a number of other Pauline texts that we could go to as well, but that Old Testament portrait um, of of these rebellious cosmic rulers um, fostering, uh, per- perversions and corruptions in culture and ideologies that enslave and that oppress. Um, Paul Paul borrowed, or he didn't borrow, but he that was his worldview. I mean, that's this is the way that he thought about how all things are, and it's just that um, God has acted in Christ to break their rule over uh, creation and to uh, accomplish His work of salvation. That is not simply applied to individuals but is cosmos wide it's a cosmic work uh, of salvation because god is retaking his creation uh, and individuals are wrapped up into that larger work Um, another aspect of of jewish thought that shaped paul's way of thinking is to see that satan is sort of you know in charge of this whole uh band of rebellious cosmic actors uh in second corinthians 4 4 paul calls satan the god of this age often translated as God of this world. But again, when Paul uh, talks about this age, that's a different term that he uses than when he uses cosmos to refer to world. Um, Aeon is the Greek word for age, and it has to do with this age and all of its um, outlook or its its mind, its wisdom, its ways of thinking. And Satan orients it. In Ephesians 2.2, he calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, And um, he also calls him the ruler of a spirit that works among the children of disobedience. And that reference to to the air is the same um, sort of notion as this age. It's where where mindsets dwell, ideologies, patterns of thought, assumptions, conceptions of reality, ways of seeing what's good, ways of seeing what's bad, all that. Paul sees all these cultural dynamics as overseen and fostered by Satan and the powers and authorities. Um, And Paul portrays ways of life outside of Christ as being enslaved to Satan and the powers and authorities, not that unbelievers are all literally controlled by them, don't think in those terms, but simply that living outside of Christ is sort of living according to those corrupt social behaviors and these these corrupt ideologies and these these anti-God ways of thinking that pervade the world. Um, You see this in Galatians 4 when Paul rebukes the Galatians for being, um, after they've been liberated from the rule of these elemental principles, which is a reference to the powers and authorities, these cosmic rulers, um, Paul asks the Galatians why they want to go back and submit to that kind of enslavement. Uh, And this is Paul's exhortation in Colossians 2.8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, so according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles of the world, these hostile cosmic forces, rather than according to Christ. So Paul's not condemning studying philosophy there. I think he'd want us actually sharpening our minds and um, sharpening our our intellectual muscles uh, far more than we do. Rather, Paul is warning about these destructive ideologies, uh, these apparently mundane social patterns that are woven into the fabric of our experience of this world. They appear to us as natural or even neutral or just the way things are. But according to Paul, they're actually manipulated and overseen by hostile cosmic forces and they're passed down through human tradition, human ways of thinking. And in our experience, we end up receiving them through agencies that we trust through family, through um, school. I mean, this, this is just, these ideologies are kind of in the air and they're just passed on um, by humans. It's how we inherit ways of seeing this world. But this is why it's so crucial and critical to um, examine ourselves and to examine our culture for these ideologies that foster oppressive social structures because we are trained not to see them one of the chief strategies of these figures is to make oppressive structures seem normal this is just the way things are and we have explanations for them we have um, even defenses of them this is why this system works well and this is why those people live there and this is why these people are on top and why those people are on the bottom um, we have ex- I mean i grew up for example with all kinds of ways of explaining why certain people were poor, uh, why certain people lived in certain neighborhoods. I mean, we have ways of talking about all this that make sense to us. Um, And that's why Paul uh, exhorts the Colossians to be very careful, to watch out so that nobody takes you captive through any of these ideologies um, that are passed on through human tradition and that come from these hostile cosmic forces. So, just to say, uh, this is all part of my discovery. I'm just reporting to you the background of, you know, how I came to see what was actually going on in Ephesians. Um, I discovered that this whole way of thinking, this whole worldview that revolved around these figures, uh, informed Paul's thought, and this is the larger the canvas on which his thought is laid out, and. Just seeing all this began to radically reshape how I thought, and I basically started to look for how ideologies subtly shape our vision of this world, and how they may have even infected and affected how I think and how I see the world, and perhaps even have affected how I think theologically. After all, when Paul speaks to his churches— he exhorts them to do this very work of discernment. It's one thing to sort of look at other people and sort of say, well, we don't think like them. They're the ones who are wrong. Here's where our thought is right. Uh, Paul is not interested in that. He wants us to do cultural analysis so that we can see to it how our own thinking um, has become, quote-unquote, worldly. Paul does not have a lot of critiques of sort of people in the world, he has critiques of Christian churches that think like the world, that have thought patterns that come from other sources than from uh, from Christ. So um, a, a couple of things, actually, before I start talking about um, any more of this, just to kind of take a pause and uh, give a few words of maybe warning, uh, I just want to say a couple of things about what we should not be thinking about when we think about these cosmic ruler figures. First of all, I think it's very easy to sort of overread or overestimate the work of the powers in the world. Like, very honestly, this stuff is fascinating in the Bible. It's so interesting. But we have to remember that our imaginations can be shaped by spectacle and drama, and we can easily fall into the trap of wild speculation. And I think that this happened, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s in evangelicalism uh, with all this you know, outbreak of spiritual warfare talk and Frank Peretti novels and, you know, a lot of other kind of stuff. I remember um, in the 90s, we lived in in California and in our apartment building, um, there were some good folks that lived there and somebody had a bike stolen. And I remember a couple of Christian people uh, knocking on our door and asking us if we wanted to um, walk around the rooftop of the building uh, to do a prayer walk around it to ward off further demonic attacks just to say uh this is not what paul's talking about with the powers and authorities they they do not work um in that way that is um i'm pretty confident that a break-in and a stolen bike is the result of just i don't know failure to lock a door or something or someone else just doing damage and stealing um there's nothing sort of spiritual behind that kind of thing. And the powers and authorities don't work in that way anyway. These, They don't work at the the micro level, the individual level. They work at the macro level on culture. Um, and in Scripture, they're distinct from sort of demons or unclean spirits that you find in the pages of the Gospels. I'm not going to go into that at all. Um, but these are um, figures that oversee corrupt ways of thinking and living Culture wide, um, and we are not called to engage these figures. Paul never were. Sorry, Paul never anywhere says to actually address these figures. So um, you know, we don't bind Satan, or we don't confront these powers, we don't call them out. Um, Jude has some things to say about doing that, about speaking. Arrogantly to spiritual entities in the cosmic realm that we have no idea about. It, just don't do that. And there's nowhere that Paul says to do that. Um, another point is that we shouldn't be too wrapped up into ident- identifying these entities or even really being too concerned about them in themselves. Um, our focus is on talking about their effects in the human realm. You don't even have to talk about whether they exist, uh, whatever their names are, or whatever. All of that is irrelevant. It's just to say that this is what, um, this is the vocabulary, the language set that the biblical writers could use, and Paul used to talk about large-scale injustices or systems of economic oppression, social oppression, exploitation, and those realities should be our focus, discerning those corruptions. Paul had a way of talking about it, and um, because of our Inherited worldview of in that focuses everything on the individual, we have neglected to do that work. We've neglected that that's even a reality, um, and that it was was actually a reality for Paul. We imagine that his theology worked um, at the individual level, but we should make the move. We should make the very move that Paul makes, not focusing on the powers themselves, but actually the social practices, the systems of injustice and oppression the relational dynamics, all of those things that allow for exploitation and oppression and that prevent human flourishing. There's a massive difference between the New Testament writers and the Jewish literature, like say, you know, first Enoch. Um, the New Testament writers don't go into all the wild speculation about names and about tasks and all of that that, um, that the Jewish literature does. Um, that doesn't make it better or worse. I'm not saying that. I'm only saying that Paul does not encourage speculation. He encourages critical cultural analysis. So the dynamics of exclusion, of racism, of sexism, systems that keep people trapped in poverty, extreme wealth inequalities, all of that stuff, um, following Paul is what we ought to be thinking about, discerning, and talking about. And um, as I'll say in a bit, um, Paul's burden is, in Ephesians and in Romans and 1 Corinthians and basically all his letters is for the church to name and identify these corrupt dynamics and to resist them. That is doing the work of discernment to identify how all of this works and then thinking creatively about how we form communities that resist their efforts to shape us according to the corruptions of this age. Um, that's as I said before. That's Paul's exhortation in Romans twelve two. Do not be conformed to this age, as a church. Romans is a letter written to a collection of house churches in Rome. Do not be conformed to this age in your social patterns, in your relating to one another, in your tendency to form cliques and fight each other. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think differently. Always have. Um, your imagination, your corporate mind being renovated and renewed and transformed. So identify the corruptions of this age and do not be conformed to them. That's what Paul is saying there in Romans 12:2. And that's the thrust of Paul's exhortation in Ephesians six when he all that spiritual warfare talk, uh, when he says, "Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And those schemes um, are the ways that Satan uh, wants to pervert and ruin human experience through division uh, in the church. And the sowing of animosity and anger in our culture. Uh, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places paul's not talking about individual spiritual warfare there that's a call to the church to recognize um, those dynamics of division human degradation oppression exploitation, and to struggle to form communities um, oriented around service around self giving love and oriented um, uh, around the work of bringing flourishing where there is human suffering that's sort of an overview of how paul um spoke from within his Jewish worldview, talking about Satan and the powers and authorities. We could also talk about how Paul talks about sin and death. Uh, in Paul, people do sin and people do die. But in Romans 5 and 7, um, Paul talks about sin and death as doing things. They they both sort of have a, a mind and intention and will. And sin and death in Paul are these um, these cosmic forces that have a mind and, and, and um, work together sort of with, the, with Satan and the powers and authorities uh, to foster uh, human degradation. Just to say, um, a big influence for me was uh, J.C. Becker in his book, Paul the Apostle, um, and he talks about, which this is just the coolest term, he talks about the apocalyptic power alliance, of the powers, Satan and sin and death. All these cosmic figures that are working to ruin human experience in this world. Um my goodness, we can go on and on and talk about all of this, but um uh, I'll just I'll leave that portrait there at this point. But all of that is the backdrop against which Paul portrays salvation. In the death of Christ, God shattered the rule of the apocalyptic power alliance over creation. He basically broke their enslaving grip and began his work of liberation. And then in sending the Holy Spirit into the world, God clears this cosmic space in which he begins to draw humanity, forming the new creation people of God. And we are drawn into that cosmic space. We are drawn into Christ, this new space that's been opened up uh, where there's liberation, where there's freedom from the malignant influence of these fallen powers the church is the lo- the location on earth where there's resurrection life resurrection presence empowering us to form community life that's renewed and liberated and where we live within creation according to our true humanity paul talks about this in galatians 1:4 when he talks about being rescued from the present evil age in colossians 1:13 he says we've been transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of god's beloved son he gets at this throughout romans um, you know, being in Christ, we're in this new liberative space. We're no longer to be slaves of sin as a community, but to be slaves of righteousness, um, slaves of, the, of that set right form of human life, not characterized by division, by power seeking, by oppression, but by mutual service, uh, by self-giving love, and especially considering the absolute high point of Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, I believe, that exhortation to welcome one another. That is, the two groups in the Roman house churches that are squabbling offer each other hospitality and embrace. Uh, by the way, you've got to read uh, Josh Jip's amazing book on this, on hospitality. It's such an important topic. Um, hospitality my goodness it's it's uh, it lies at the heart of god um it's one of the things that um paul says that pastors are are to be characterized by hospitality and it's a practice that uh certainly in the west we've fallen out of and certainly in america there are certain countries in the west that do this quite well thinking of the irish um the scots um not so much the english although anyway i don't want to offend anybody but certainly, in um, eastern parts of the world, um, and in the Middle East, in the Far East, I mean, this is practiced quite um, is a, quite a profound cultural practice. So, for Paul, the problem is not merely that individuals are sinners and individuals need to get saved; it's a far bigger issue than that. The problem is that the entire cosmos was enslaved, and you know, we don't merely have sins forgiven at salvation, though that's true. We're brought into God's kingdom, into that new space on earth where God is remaking humans into the image of His Son. And that's a reality that, that is embodied through a new form of life, um, a set free form of life, um, set, uh, free from the enslavement of the powers and authorities of Satan and from sin and death. So for me, you know, coming to see this larger picture that Paul portrays set me on this course of examining ideologies that enslave our imaginations and I wanted to identify them and get a grip on what are the renewed ways of thinking what are what are the ways that you know Paul wants us thinking according to you? that for me drives this entire larger project of critical cultural discernment and based on Paul's thought you know the things that I look out for are you know, where are people feeling marginalized? Are there larger forces at work to bring that about? Where do people not feel welcomed and included? Where's their frustration and anger? Where's their demonization of outsiders? Where's there a failure to think the best of others and even people that we don't know? Are there structural dynamics at work to orient life in some corrupt way in all those dynamics? In what ways has my culture taught me to think about who is good and who is bad, about who is safe and who's unsafe? And where did all these ways of thinking come from? When was I taught them? Or are they just in the air? And perhaps Paul wants me to be thinking um, about that if that's the case. So, you know, in my being brought up as an evangelical, I was taught that all these bad mindsets are sort of out there in the world. Um, But I... You know, following Paul, I want to know how these are at work on me. How are these at work in our communities? How have we passed them down in the culture that we've regarded as safe, as the God-ordained culture? Because like I said, the story of Scripture is the story of God's people constantly adopting wrong ways of thinking, bad assumptions, unjust forms of community life. So I want to know, how are these at work in our communities, um, and how have they contributed to shaping a collective evangelical imagination. And um, I just I'll just I've got a few of these. Um, just as a sampler. I've mentioned this before and that is individualism. You know evangelical theological vision is completely individualistic and it simply doesn't have the framework for understanding the biblical vision of what has happened to God's good world and what God has done to take it back. And so we miss so much. And we also fail to see the role of the church in the world, because we don't have the framework or the vocabulary to rightly regard Christian identity and a Christian conception of what's going on out there. Um, we don't have the ideological tools, basically, to deal with structural and systemic evil and to orient ourselves according to community patterns of renewed life. Um, you know Christian evangelical thinking basically starts with you know my connection with Jesus. and it doesn't have a conception of how to be a corporate culture that is different from the surrounding culture. And by different, I mean different in the right way, not having you know a certain kind of music that is just syrupy and sappy and not um, you know having cultural expressions and cultural artifacts that are you know you know like greeting cards. That are all just positive, and uplifting. Uh, the difference is supposed to be service to the poor, advocating for the marginalized, forming communities not characterized by division. In fact, when Paul talks about worldliness, hit for him, worldliness is being divisive, having factions, and um, that is a problem for us. We've become a fact. We've become a faction. Uh, we don't play well with others. We've kind of developed a bad reputation in the larger culture, and um, you know our Protestant tradition is one of just constant division and divisiveness, uh, which is really tragic. Um. Anyway, lots I could say about individualism, but I've talked about that in the past, so I'm I'm going to just talk about a couple other things. Ideologies shaped by efficiency. Um, loads of aspects to that, and um, ways that we neglect the slowness. And the inefficiency of rich community life Um, ideologies connected to convenience is a major ideology that shapes how we think about things Uh, effectiveness what sort of means are going to bring about our desired ends or maybe even imagining an end that is good and then coming up with the means to get there our thinking is so affected by that and of course that has been true for the people of god throughout the story of the scriptures. I think about Gideon. I mean, how do you defeat the uh, the armies of Midian? Well, you get a big band together, which a big band of warriors together, which Gideon knew how to do. Gideon is basically a high-powered gangster in that story, um, and God wants to deliver Israel through him and basically pairs the number of men he can use down to 300, um, and all they do is you make a bunch of noise that's how it's going to happen. Um, that's not doesn't seem very effective, nor does marching around a city for seven, uh, once a day for seven days, and then seven times on the last day, that doesn't seem effective. God has ways of doing things that are pretty much always going to run against the grain of what we imagine as effective. Um, I mean, how do you make, how do you guarantee national security? You make treaties and international agreements. And of course, God wanted uh, God uh, prohibited Israel from doing that, as basically the first command in in going into the new land, the land of promise. Um, loads of ideologies with regard to money. We imagine that you know money's an obvious good, and we can use it to accomplish God's purposes. Um, but Mark chapter four. Um, has Jesus talking about the deceitfulness of money. And he's not talking about money that draws us away from the church or draws us away from loyalty to Jesus. He's talking about money in service uh, to God's purposes and how that messes with our heads and messes with community life too. Market ideologies, um, growth ideologies, what's bigger is better. So in our larger culture, uh, we want to hear that you know the stock market is going up or the housing market is growing. Growth is good, and uh, that's an unmixed, you know, that's that's a that's an obvious good. Which why is that the case? Why is it obviously good that the housing market is growing? What if it was completely stable because everybody had a house? I mean, there's loads of ideologies with regard to growth and the market in our larger culture that have shaped Christian imaginations. So, because bigger is better, growth is is an obvious good. Um, Small churches are an indication of failure. A lot of pastors feel that way um, because bigger is obviously better. Of course, um, boy, I'd love to say a lot about this, but it's interesting that the large crowds in Mark's gospel are consistently portrayed as a single character, which is interesting, but they're always a negative character. The crowds that gather, that swarm to Jesus and pile all over Him, always get in the way of Him doing His work. And Jesus doesn't want anybody hearing about what He's doing for something, for very specific reasons in Mark. Um, But, you know, the ways that we think about being church um, sort of bypass all of that. And we love spectacle in ministry. Somebody impressive, somebody who's a wonderful speaker, but we neglect to think about how Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 talked about how because the Corinthians loved that kind of preaching and public presentation, he purposefully cultivated among them a presence that was unremarkable because of his lived theology of the cross. So we've got some work to do to sort of think through some of these things. Yeah, boy, one of the one of the ways that a market ideology has gotten its way into our ways of thinking is all of the investment language that I hear in ministry settings. Like um, if I'm imagining sort of a mentoring relationship, um, I might say something like, yeah, I'm going to really invest in this person. I want to invest in them. Why do we use capitalist language to talk about relationships? Think about all of the assumptions and connected thoughts and implications of that kind of language. What if somebody, what if you determine over time that a person is not a good investment? What what are the criteria that you use? What if you don't think that you're getting a good payoff? Um, what if the person is actually, you know, you mean a lot to that person and you've been very significant in their life, but you don't have a proper way of reading that. And you see them as a poor investment. So you cut yourself off from them. Not only that, but you see yourself as sort of like the one with all the resources, and the other person um, as you know having potential. That that is not any way that Paul would ever talk about any of his relationships. He's always talking about mutuality, about blessing others and being blessed by others, about delivering a spiritual gift and receiving a spiritual gift. Um, but that kind of market ideology has you know wormed its way into our vocabulary and is so common. Another ideology. Ideologies having to do with power. This is a huge one in Scripture. Um, My goodness, the Gospels each directly undermine this, and Paul has loads to say about power throughout his letters. Um, You know, when in Mark, anyway, when the disciples all sign up uh, to follow Jesus, they have in their mind following a revolutionary figure to Jerusalem to witness God's dramatic rescue of Israel through military might, through power. So, um, I mean, Peter has an imagination shaped by the Maccabees and their legendary triumphs. So, when Jesus says that he's going to Jerusalem to die, Peter's like, what are you talking about? And of course, um, uh, that's... The very thing that um, that Jesus has heard from Satan in the satanic temptation at the beginning of the Gospels, when Satan does not ever tempt Jesus to not be the Son of God, he tempts Jesus to be the Son of God in power, not uh, by going to the cross. So, quest for power, um, grasping for political power to gain ascendancy in the culture. I mean, that is a temptation that the Christian Church has fallen prey to for the last seventeen hundred years. And uh, that affects American Christianity powerfully. Um, we we want to have access to power. We, we, we want power for ourselves. But that is one of the seductions of the powers and authorities and of sin and death. And um, that has to be resisted at every turn. And unfortunately, that we're getting killed by that one. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of saying all of this to say what to kind of give some backdrop to what I was talking about last week with um, uh, critical race theory. This was my experience in kind of coming to understand Paul's theology and taking a posture toward cultural critique. So when I began to read about whiteness and when I began to read into the literature on race, um, I mean, my obviously I'm am a I'm a 48-year-old currently white man, and i am shaped by my culture and i've i've tried to work hard to have an alternative mindset but when i picked up the literature on race i was blown away at uh, the ideologies that my mind had been shaped according to and but when i began to read about whiteness i already had this this pauline theological framework in mind that we all constantly have colonized imaginations. The ideologies of this age have infected the way that we think, and uh, we are subject to that until we do the long work of critical self-examination. So um, when I began to read uh, critical race theory and uh, works on uh, describing whiteness, I was just ready to take it in, And um, because Paul has quite a bit to say about Um, ethnic differentiation and ethnic conflict in his letters, and I can see these very dynamics up and running in Paul's letters as um, in the contemporary literature on race. Uh, Whiteness is the whole notion, I mean, the ideology that centers being white and um, sets everybody else of different skin colors and cultures um, sort of at um, at a remove from whiteness and in relation to whiteness, so whiteness has absolute value, and all the way down to blackness, and that lens has affected all of us. It's been around for hundreds of years. It's a product of the colonial era, and we have been affected by it. And um, it's not and there's no value in denying that you're racist. We've all inherited this lens. It's the way that we kind of have all agreed to see things. Um, and when I I'm saying all of what I'm saying to say that when I see resources like uh, feminism and feminist writers and scholars who who do the work of how power is at work in our culture, in relationships, in workplaces, um, to foster uh, systems of exclusion, marginalization, and oppression of women, I'm ready to listen because I wanna see those same structures. And when I pick up critical race theorists who are pointing these very same things out in philosophy, in in law, um, in theology, in biblical studies, in art, and literature, I am ready to listen because they are asking the very same questions as Paul. And I don't even see myself in dialogue with them. I am a student. I mean, I have a life, I've, I've inherited, my goodness, I've inherited um, generations Of thinking as a white, as a European, and I have a lifetime of thinking and seeing and feeling and sensing as a white man, and um, you know, black people and black women have—they are the heirs of generations of accumulated wisdom for how culture works, for how systems work, for how oppression works. Um, for how whiteness works, for how white people act. And um, contemporary scholars who are people of color um, who have done the theoretical work as well um, are great resources for us. And I feel like I only have questions. I don't feel like I have something to say or to weigh in. Um, I realize that because of my cultural background and because of my personal experience, I have a long way to go uh, to come to grips Um, with with asking the right questions, with seeing the right things, and then also doing the work to discern how my reading of Paul is shaped by my biography and by my cultural setting. And all of that is part of the constructive work of thinking about uh, being Christian in this world. Um, And just to say that that goes along with how Paul shapes the life of the church. Because as I said, in the death of Christ for Paul... Um, Christ broke the enslaving grip over creation of the powers and authorities, and in in his death and resurrection, he brought about the new creation. So because of that, because it was Christ's death that uh, was triumphant, the church embodies that liberative reality through cross-shaped existence. So our community life is shaped by the cross, and our personal behaviors are shaped by the cross because um, living according to the cross is the only form of life that enjoys resurrection power. The cross and people on crosses; those, these are the only sites on earth where God pours out resurrection power. And that is a form of life that resists power. It's a form of life that is is power surrender, uh, as Paul talks about in Philippians two six through eleven, where Christ had all privileges and prerogatives and did not regard them something to use for his, to be used for his own advantage but poured himself out went to the lowest place took the form of a servant and was faithful to the point of death on the cross and because of that paul sees his own life as his own life mission to be shaped in that form of downward mobility not upward mobility so paul's always asking how can he embrace shame and weakness and service and self-giving so that he can enjoy the power of God in his life. So analyzing how power works in our culture, to my mind, opens up the possibility of imagining how we can resist power and pursue uh, forms of life that look like weakness and look like self-giving love, because that is the church's politics. It's a politics of the cross. It's a politics of power surrender, of love, of hospitality. We have to give up on these earthly quests for political power and see them as temptations, basically to adopt a form of life that the cross condemns. And because the church is a community of ongoing repentance, always turning away and identifying these enslaving practices that still you know, have their grip in us, because we're always turning away from those, always being in renewed in our thinking and always cultivating renewed forms of community life. Um, I'm very interested in this project uh, of doing that. I'll just make one last comment and um, that is to say, uh, what's a what's a real challenge and I'm still wrestling with this. Um, I could see it theologically in Paul, but I'm just trying to see how it works out in our experience. For Paul, the church is the agent of God's work in the world, not individuals. It's just way too big for any one of us. It's it's about the new community um, acting locally to serve, to seek out those who suffer, uh, to discern and to to, uh, to determine together how we can bring relief and rest and refreshment, to offer ourselves as communities to those who are in need or those who have been excluded or rejected or marginalized. Um, None of us can do that on our own. It's not even individual families that do that, um, but church families do this, and it's that's the challenge, is how do we get our individualized um, churches to think corporately in a way that's very different? Um, I think that's going to be a challenge for churches to even want to do that, because that way of life is not spectacular. It's not going to be popular. Not everyone's going to be on board with it. Not everyone's going to be you know, signing up for it. Um, the thing is, though, according to Paul, that is the way of life that is truly life, and it's the way of life that is the way to life. So that's some backdrop to why I say the things that I've said last week about critical race theory and sort of a biblical theology of the powers and authorities, and kind of an overview of my whole framework for approaching so many topics. Um, I thought that this would not go long, but my goodness, I'm looking at the time now, and I think this is a long episode. Well, that's episode 11 in the bag, peering out my window. It's a gorgeous late afternoon. It's been a full day of sun here in West Michigan. Uh, It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.